0: Thank you, Sarah, for that. Hey, if, you, if I, I mean, that was beautiful. If you're grateful for the choir and the orchestra, would you give them a hand again? Hey, and if you're if you're grateful and you'd like to join the music ministry here at Harvest, tonight is an open house, music ministry open house. Come out at 5 p.m. You'll get to see what a practice looks like, and then afterwards, some food and fellowship. Uh, a couple of things here happening at Harvest. Uh, Friday, this Friday, October 21st, from 6 to 8, is our annual Trunk Retreat. Um, And so we're excited about that, and many of you guys have been asking, you know, can I still donate candy to this? Yes, you could drop it off at the welcome desk anytime before Thursday. That would be such a blessing. Also, you'll see these cards in the entrances, all the door entrances here. Uh, Would you grab a stack of them? Invite a, a friend or, you know, someone on your kid's ball team. It's such an easy way to invite someone to church. Um, I, know, I know there's been so many different stories over the past couple years about how someone's come to a trunk or treat, maybe even some sitting here today, that their first way of coming onto campus was trunk or treat, and then they end up joining the church. So uh, pass those out, find someone, invite them out. Uh, we're going to see a uh, video here in just, in se- just a second for uh, Missions Month, regionally, what Harvest is doing. But before that, would you take out your missions bulletin? On the back, you might have missed this. There's a I want you to see that last line october 30th. There's an evening service at 6 p.m It's going to be a special service We have a bunch of missionaries who are going to join us for that from costa rica india Zambia and so come out, you know mark your calendar calendar down and come out to that It's going to be a great time. Uh at this time. We're going to see the video. So guys go ahead and play that
1: This week for Harvest Missions, we're focusing on the greater Pittsburgh area. We went to help others and share the good news of Jesus globally, but also regionally. And we see this biblical model in Acts chapter one, where Jesus tells his disciples to make a difference, not just around the world, but also in their region. Our plan to continue making an impact in our region is rooted in both regional partnerships and regional media. First, let's consider our regional partnerships. Over the last couple of years, we have established wonderful relationships with ministries that are Christian, gospel-based, and need-focused. Our goal is to continue being a source of life and help to these ministries. First is the Light of Life Rescue Mission in Pittsburgh. This is a gospel preaching and teaching ministry that is reaching out to the physical needs of more than 1,500 homeless in Allegheny County. They've provided more than 250,000 meals and 8,000 nights of shelter to those in need, all while sharing the good news of Jesus. This year, we were able to take them on for monthly support and they allow us to send a team from our church every month to share the gospel with those who are there for a meal. Second is the Need Cafe. The Need Cafe is a gospel-based ministry in New Kensington that provides food for those in need and job training for those in need of a marketable skill set. For three years in a row, we've also been able to love our neighbors by providing the funds and volunteers needed for their annual Share Thanksgiving event. Third is a pair of ministries that help women choose life. As followers of Christ, we believe that every life is valuable. And in a world where 50 million abortions happen annually, places like Tri-Life Center in Lower Burrell and Life Choices in Katanning are changing the narrative by sharing Jesus and giving guidance to mothers who otherwise would have nowhere else to turn. This year we coordinated fundraisers for both of these ministries and provided much needed volunteerism. Next is the Allegheny Valley Association of Churches. This group provides an array of programs for our community, such as food pantry, benevolence, scholarships, and transportation for the elderly to doctor's visits. Also is the Gideons of Western Pennsylvania. Gideons are believers dedicated to making the Bible available to everyone and together with the local church, reaching souls for Christ. As a group, Gideons have distributed more than 2 billion scriptures in more than 95 languages across the globe. This year, we planted the seeds of a partnership with the Gideons by taking them on for monthly support, and we can't wait to assist with some of their larger Bible distributions. And that's not to mention the project support that we gave to four of our local volunteer fire companies, the nursing home services we run each month, the funds and pulpit supply that we were able to provide for churches in our region, or the barn we helped expand for the Salted Springs Youth Ranch of Duncansville. God is truly using our church to share light and life with those around us, and we never want to take this for granted. On top of all of this, we continue to see an eternal impact through our regional media. Every Sunday at 8 a.m., more than 900 homes in our region tune in to Fox 53 and watch Harvest's broadcast. We have received thank you letters and testimonies of people coming to faith and coming back to their faith from prisons and nursing homes and people all over our region. We think that's pretty awesome and has God written all over it. And last month, we began broadcasting sermons on the radio as well. In your bulletin today, you can find the stations and times that we're broadcasting on, and we can't wait to share the stories of what God is going to do with this outreach. Church, this is incredible that we get to be a part of all the opportunities that God gives us. It takes resources to resource others, and we believe that God has provided for our church so that we, in turn, can provide for others. As you start to consider how you can join in on all that God is doing here, don't let the opportunity of making a gospel footprint in our region pass you by. Commit to pray, be willing to volunteer, and have a heart to give.
2: Well, I love watching those videos, not just because it recaps some of the things we've been able to do over the last year and that's just in our region. Next week we'll get national, the week after that we'll get international. Uh, But hopefully it's also inspiring. Uh, We purposely plan the videos and plan missions month and then plan to collect commitments to our missions program at the end of the month because we want you to be impacted by how much we're doing and we want you to be inspired to give honestly. Uh, You have in your bulletin these little cards. Uh, We won't collect these today, they're just meant to be seeds that we're planting and kind of putting in front of your face and saying, hey, take these home, pray over these. If you don't have a regular pattern of generosity or tithing or those sorts of things, I would start those first, Uh, but if that is in place and you would be willing to or you think God would have you give above and beyond that to our missions program, I hope that you will at least consider it. Uh, We'll collect these two weeks from today. We'll also collect an offering for the missionaries that will be with us. There's a list of those on the back of your bulletin on October the 30th, and uh, we'll give you more details on the offering next week. Uh, But be thinking about this and praying about this. Uh, Last year, we had a goal, as we do every year, to set the record and to raise the bar and to have more money go through our missions program and be funneled outside of our church than ever before. Our goal was $325,000 and you all shattered it. We did $370,000 last year, which was a banner year for us. I don't know if we'll be able to repeat that this year. I'm hoping so, and we're aiming at it, but I want to say thank you if you participated, Uh, but don't let the opportunity to give again pass you by. And be thinking about this because we're going to collect these uh, here on October the 30th. That video mentioned the Gideons, and that's a a new partnership for us that we started this year, uh, giving to them every single month. And that really was inspired by one of our church members, Don Huber. Don has been a part of our church now for only a year or two, not, not a long time. Uh, but we got a lunch together, and I said, Don, tell me your story. Tell me your testimony. And he began to share with me his testimony and how the Gideons were used in his life. And Don is a Gideon himself. And, uh, and it led us to kind of form a little bit of a, a partnership and begin to plant those seeds. And I asked Don, I said, would you be willing to come share your story with the church family because I think that it would bless them. I think that it would encourage them. I think that it would provoke them to good works. And he said, absolutely, I'd be happy to. So I'm going to ask Don to to come up and and take five minutes to share his story. Uh, He also has a table out in the lobby. If you're interested in the Gideons or some information, and who are these people and what do they do? Or can I join them or be a friend of the Gideons or something? You can go by the table in the lobby today. And uh, after he shares his story, he's going to pray for us and we're going to dive into Revelation when he's done. But Don, thank you for being willing you go. Uh it's it's not it's not the easiest thing to stand in front of people and talk so I'm I'm grateful that you're willing to do it and uh and take it away, man. Share with us what God did in your life. Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate Mark. it, man. Okay.
3: Good morning, beloved. My story begins about 45 years ago. I uh grew up in a traditional church, not one that you would associate necessarily with uh a faith and a grace gospel. Uh so I went into the induction center in the federal building. Uh, downtown here, uh, joined the U.S. Army, I was getting ready to ship out, and right before I shipped out, there was a Gideon that uh, approached us, he turned off the television, and and he said a few words, I don't remember anything he said, but at the end he said, would any of you like to have a scripture, a New Testament, okay, and I received a New Testament just like this one here, and uh, I took it with me and it traveled with me for a while, and it find its, finally found its way into a, a drawer, in the back of a drawer, and that's where it stayed for a couple of years. And then one day I was getting ready to go to the field, and I came across the scripture, and I thought, wow, this New Testament is just the right size. It can fit in my pack because we're going to do a field exercise. And I was a paratrooper, so we had to jump in, and this was just perfect for that. And sometimes when I'm out in the field, Uh, there's some dead time. A lot of times it's so, so busy, it's, it's crazy, but then sometimes there is a lot of dead time. Well, the Lord just happened to work it out that for two days, almost two days straight, I had nothing to do but read the scriptures. And so I opened up God's Word, and for the first time in my life, I started reading about what I read about the gospel and God's story. And I was just kind of curious at the beginning, and then after a while, I became more and more intrigued by what I was reading, and then, as the next day came about, the words I, I noticed they started to burn in my heart, and and I continued to read, and when I finally got back from uh, that training exercise, I went back to garrison in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and. And I was anxious to read that scripture again. So I pulled it out again and I started reading. Every time I had a free uh, minute or a weekend or time in the evening, I would read the scriptures. And this went on for a couple of weeks and I I read through the, you know, the whole New Testament and I, I read through it twice. And I remember going back to Romans and trying to read it again and trying to get my head around it. And then I got a hold of a, uh, a full Bible and read the New Testament. And by about this time... Maybe uh, about a month had passed by, and I was back in the Gospel of John again, and then there was that moment where I thought, I'm a sinner, and, and I need God's grace, and the tears dropped on the pages of John, and I remember this just as if it was absolutely yesterday, and I confessed with my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in my heart that God had raised Him from the dead. And I said to God right then and there, I know things are going to change now. And my life did begin to change. And the Lord worked on me. And I continued to read the Bible, of course, and I I never stopped reading it every single day. And, of course, I got uh, baptized and joined a local church. And I met a Christian woman in church. and, And I married her. And we raised a family in the love and the admonition of the Lord. And then, as time go, went on and I learned more about the, the scriptures and understood it better, uh, then I began to volunteer for different ministries. And fast forward just about 20 years, I decided I'm going to join the Gideons and I'm going to distribute some scriptures. And so I was serving as a volunteer uh, in the jail ministry and in the prison ministry when we had a, a prison here in, in, in Pittsburgh. And, and I would distribute uh, scriptures just like the one I got. And I went to different uh, communities and uh, in the parks, and I would distribute scriptures there in the light of life, and even colleges and universities. And I look back and I can kind of calculate that I have distributed now something more than 2,000 scriptures. And uh, so God has been a a great blessing to me, and and the Gideon ministry is something... Uh, that I felt that that God wanted me to uh, participate in, and I'll just leave you with this this last note. Uh, when I received a scripture just like this uh, 45 years ago now, the Gideons uh, statistically we know that they had they had uh, distributed were placed uh, a little short of 200 million 200 million around the world. All right. And and since that time to today, now the Gideons have distributed two and a half billion. That's two and a half billion with a B, that many scriptures. Okay, thank you for your kind attention. I'm going to go ahead and and pray for the preaching uh, service here. Our dear Holy and Heavenly Father, our Lord of glory, Lord, we come to you and ask you to to give us your spirit. May your spirit be present in this service today, Lord. I ask you to give the pastor who's prepared a, a message uh, your words, that you would have him speak so he can be your mouthpiece, Lord. And, and I pray for uh, listening ears, Lord, that we all may prepare our hearts to receive that message, Lord, that we may know your mysteries, that we may know your revelation and gospel, Lord. And we pray in the name of our blessed author and finisher of our faith, Jesus. Amen.
2: Amen. Don, thank you for sharing. Would you give Don a hand for sharing with us this morning? I know when I, when I heard that, it just fired me up. It just made me want to go give the gospel to people, right? It made me want to take some tracts and just hand those out to people or to give someone a Bible or go on Facebook and just put a verse with no context and just launch it out there into the world because you never know what's going to happen when you're placing God's words in people's hands and how it will affect their hearts. So don't underestimate that. And whatever that means for you, make it a habit of that in, in your daily life. Well, Revelation chapter number 1 Here we go, Revelation 1. I want to reread verse 1, and then today we're going to cover verses 9 through 20. I will not rehash our entire introduction to Revelation over the past two weeks, but I do want to note one thing. So look at Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus. This is about Jesus, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And then listen to this. He sent and he signified it by his angel unto his servant John. And I want you to circle that word if you're in the habit of marking your Bibles, signified that he sent this revelation or he signified it or you could say he sign languaged it to his servant by the angel. And that's important because this is what oftentimes throws people for a loop when they come to Revelation is that there is some signification or there is some sign language of sorts in the books. People read the book and they're like, I have have a lamb and a lion and a dragon and, and candlesticks and stars and bowls and I don't know what all this stuff means and it confuses or it intimidates people sometimes. It's also what has made the book subject to so much bad teaching and preaching over the years because people take those things and make them seem or say whatever they want them to say instead of paying attention to the context. And I draw your attention to that because today is the first time, really, that you're going to get some sign language of sorts, some symbols here in the text that we will have to untangle. But it won't be difficult. The text will actually untangle it for us if we just pay attention to it. So I want us to read together, and I want us to note today three things. We're going to look at where John was, the uh, human author of this book. We're going to look at who John saw and then what John learned. So let's start with where John was. Verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So I am John. And I am your companion in tribulation on the island of Patmos because of the testimony and the word of God. So you can say it this way, because I proclaim the word and because I testify of Jesus, I am on this island, which was the Alcatraz of the day, this island where he was sent to, to suffer as a political prisoner, really, and I am with you in persecution. I'm your companion in tribulation. Now, don't gloss over those words. John's saying, I am on Patmos, suffering, and I am your companion, your partner in affliction, your partner in pain, your partner in tribulation and anguish and distress. See, for about the first 30 years of church history, if you wanted to take the first century and just chunk it off into thirds, you could say first, third, life and ministry of Jesus, the the next third, the next 30 or so years, the church is doing well. The gospel is going forward. The apostles are living by and large. Uh, they are proclaiming the word. Paul's planting churches. Daily, they're being added to the church. The church is booming. And there is persecution that befalls them, but small scale persecution, primarily from the religious sects of the day. But then, if you get into the last 30 years of the first century, that persecution, I mean, was. was so much grander than what had befallen the church in the first 30 years. And in the last 30 years, which is where John finds himself at the end of the first century as an old man, they had been through a lot. They were all companions in tribulation. See, in 65 AD, Nero launched the first wave of persecution against the church from the top down, from the government down. And this would set off waves of persecution that would last for nearly 300 years. Nero wanted to rebuild Rome into his own image, but he could not get the Senate sign-off. So he decided to burn down Rome, and he sent out men who pretended to be drunk, and they burned the city. They set it afire, and Rome blazed for six days. Seventy percent of the city burned, and half of the city was left homeless, and Nero pinned that on the Christians. And said it's their fault. They're the rebel rousers. They're the troublemakers. They're the people that have done this. And it turned the entire Roman Empire, in effect, against the Christians. And they hated them and they persecuted them. Shortly after Nero, you'd think, oh, maybe this will get better because Nero's gone. No, Vespasian began to rule. Vespasian thought so poorly of Christians that he would dip them in oil and use them as human torches to light the chariot races, to light uh, whatever games he had going on. He imprisoned them. He brutalized them. He fed them to animals. In 70 AD, Vespasian is the one who, who destroyed Jerusalem and tore down the temple. And it was under his rule that Paul and Peter and Timothy are all publicly executed. Now let that sink in for a minute. If today after church, we found out on the news that Franklin Graham got drugged from his home from some political leaders, and they took him out in the street, and they put a bullet in his head, and nobody cared, and life went on, and a lot of people celebrated it. And then they started to do that to our church into to that church. Like, this is where the people are living. And if you thought it would get better after Vespasian, it would not. You would then turn the page to Domitian And it's under Domitian that John is sent to the Isle of Patmos. It's under him that the church begins to suffer even more systematic oppression because Domitian decided that he was God. And he built a temple in Rome, and he said that you have to come here if you have the means, and you have to light some incense for me, and you have to exclaim that Caesar is God. You have to say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians refused. They said, no, 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 Jesus Curios, Jesus is Lord. And because of their refusal to worship the emperor who declared himself as God, he began to enact laws against them, such as if you were a Christian and you were brought up for any reason, whether it be ill-founded or not, but you were brought up on some sort of charge for any reason, first thing the judge was instructed to do was to ask you, will you renounce your faith? And if you would not renounce the Lord Jesus, there was no trial, there was no hearing, there were no facts to be sought. You got the furthest extent of the law for whatever it was you were being charged of, period, automatically, because you would not renounce Jesus. And it's under the mission that even these these more cruel ways of persecuting and martyring Christians began to happen. They began to drill holes in the skulls of Christian and take molten lead and pour it into the heads to kill them, to impale them on spikes and just leave them there until they died. Being thrown to the lions was a merciful way of being killed. And this is where the church is living. John had been through a lot of this. We don't have a record of this in the Bible, but church history tells us that they tried tried to kill John by boiling him alive. And although he would not die... He was physically hurt by this. And then they tried to kill John by poisoning him. As a matter of fact, the symbol for John in in church history is a chalice with a serpent coming out of it due to this poisoning that they tried to kill him with. And it did not kill him, but they say in church history that it it messed up his insides like you would not believe for the rest of his life, and he lived with severe issues and pain. And now John is... Late 80s, early 90s. He's an old man who's, they've tried to boil him. they tried to poison him, and they can't get rid of him, so they decide to throw him in Alcatraz. To throw him on the Isle of Patmos and let him waste away, away from the rest of the world. And it's there that John writes, I'm your companion in tribulation. Let that sink in for a minute. Feel what the early church must have felt. Feel how unsettling those times must have been for anyone who was a Christian. Feel the encouragement that John's heart must have needed. Put yourself emotionally on this island in isolation with John. And that's where he is in these moments where he says, I have a revelation. That's where he is in these moments. And I have to ask myself, how did John stay faithful? How did John face this? How did the early church stay resolute and not cave in and face this? Because, face it, they did. History records for us, they faced it with gumption. They didn't cave. That They went to their deaths with courage and with even joy. What is it about this book of Revelation that gave them an assist and allowed them to go through these really hard times. And if there is something in this book that allowed them to face that, I dare say there's something in this book that will allow you to face whatever it is you're facing. I don't know what you're up against today, and I don't know the anguish or the turmoil or the physical pain or the suffering or the the turmoil that's happening at work because you're a Christian and they're isolating you and ostracizing you. I don't know what you're going through, but I dare say it's probably not the tribulation that the first century church was going through. And if they were helped and stabilized by this message, we can be helped and stabilized by this message. And here's what it is. That's where John is. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's the companion in tribulation. And here's who John saw. Look at verse number 10. I was in the spirit. One quick note of commentary. There's, there's lots of writing on both of those phrases. I think that means it's as simple as, like, I'm in Patmos, but I can still walk in the spirit and be filled with the spirit. And I can still have a spiritual life, even though I'm in isolation. On the Lord's Day, there's debate as to what that means. The prevailing consensus is that it just means Sunday. Sometimes we call Sunday the Lord's Day. So here's John in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia, Laodicea. And we'll see more of those churches as we move through chapters two and three. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps or the chest with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet shined like brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice was as a sound of many waters, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of death and hell. Now who did John see? Well, let's put it very simply. John saw Jesus. Verse 13 says, I saw one like as unto the Son of Man. And it's this Son of Man in verse number 18 that exclaims who he is. I am he that lives but was dead and will live forevermore. And that's only describing one person. Commentators debate a lot about Revelation, but they don't debate this. John just saw Jesus. And he didn't just see Jesus, he saw God. Because if you look at it in verse number 10, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And if you remember last week in verse number 8, that same description, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, was used to describe God the Father. How can the Father be the Alpha and Omega and the Son be the Alpha and Omega? Well, there's only one explanation for that. That the Son is just as much the Alpha and Omega in God as the Father. Distinct in person, but one in essence. That this is an is explicit claim to Jesus' deity, that Jesus is in fact the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The first and the last. Just like the Father. Alpha and Omega is, is their Greek uh, letters. Part of the alphabet, 24 letters in the Greek alphabet. Alpha first, like our A. Uh, Omega, the end, like our Z. What is he saying? I'm alpha and omega. Think about that for a minute. Just chew on what that might mean. We use alpha terminology even in our vernacular modern day. We may say that he's an alpha male, or he's an alpha wide receiver, or he's an alpha leader. What do we mean when we say that? We mean the Steelers have a wide receiver room and it's filled with wide receivers who are professionals. But every once in a while, you get number 84 AB alpha wide receiver who steps into the room and is 10% better than even a professional wide receiver and he's an alpha wide receiver. Yeah, there's lots of great business leaders, but that one, he's 10 or 20% better than even the best business leaders. He's an alpha leader. And what do we do to these alphas? We pay attention to them. We tune in to them. We pay them money to get their coaching. We stop when we scroll through Facebook. We stop at their feeds. And what are they doing? What are they saying? We hone in on those people, right? And Jesus says, time out. I'm the alpha. I don't care how good someone can catch a ball or lead a business or how much money they have or how many people they lead. I'm the alpha. Nobody compares to me. Nobody's like me. And if you tune into your alpha leaders in your society and you pay them money and you look at what they have to say, you better tune into me. You better look at me. You better pay attention to me. You better want to know what I have to say. You better receive my coaching. I'm the alpha. I am the first. We fall into, into two traps in our Western society when it comes to this. We either look at other people and say, oh, they're great and I'm not, or secular Western society says, I'm great. This happens all the time, especially people who are without God. Let's remove God from society. Let's replace him with science. And let's look at, okay, well, what do we focus on? What's the most important thing? Focus on yourself. You're the most important thing. It's about you. You're the best. You're awesome. You have what it takes. You have unlimited potential. You can do anything you set your mind to. All not true. All not true. You're the alpha so self-care and self-love and self-actualize and look at yourself. The problem is you zoom in so close to yourself and you look at yourself so intently, you won't even see yourself, as ironic as that seems. If I take this book and I zoom in too closely and I focus on it too much, I got nothing. I got, I got little specks of black and a sea of off-white. But if I zoom it out a little bit, oh, I got words on a page. If I zoom it out a little bit more, oh, I got Revelation chapter 2. Oh, this must be a Bible. If I zoom it out a bit more, I got a Bible on a pulpit. Oh, someone must be preaching from that Bible. You have to get back to be able to see that. In our society, we focus so intently on ourselves, we don't even understand ourselves. Jesus says, zoom it out a little bit. I'm the alpha. I'm the alpha. You fit in my system. I'm the creator. You're the creation. Zoom out. You're one of a of, of whole lot of people inside of my creation. Okay, that's where I fit in. What am I supposed to do? What does that mean for me? Well, you're created for something, specifically to give God glory. And until you zoom that out and you understand that Jesus is the alpha and you are not, you won't even understand life. You don't even understand who you are or what you're made for. You're made for him. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. The end, the last. I put it very simply. I am the end. I am not a means to an end. Isn't this what we try to figure out in all of our relationships? Am I an end or am I a means to an end? Do they, when you're dating, you're especially trying to figure this out. Do they love me or are they acting like they love me so that they can get to whatever it is they want? Do they love me, or are they wanting to scratch their sexual itch? Do they love me, or do they love my money, and they're using me to get to my money? What are you asking yourself? Am I an end, or am I a means to an end? And Jesus says, I'm the end. I'm not a means to an end. And even Christians fall into this trap all the time, where we say, yeah, Jesus, he's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. But we use him as a means to an end, and we don't even realize it. Well, Jesus, I got my little scheme going. I go to church, I read my Bible, I join the Gideons, I pray, I try to be a good person, so you better deliver, blank, you better deliver a solid marriage that never falters, you better deliver my health, you better deliver, and then when that begins to be ripped away from us and we begin to pray, and Lord, give me my health back, then we get mad at him. I said, give me my health back, I did it the right way. I went to church. I tried to obey. I tried to be a good person. I I shared you with other people. You owe me. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's not answering your prayers because he's trying to help you see you're using him as a means to an end. He's your means to get what you want. He's not an end in and of himself in your life. And he says, that's not, don't mistake me. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the first. I am the last. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. That's who I am. Tim Keller illustrates this, I think, very well in a sermon he has on the life of Moses. And he says that Moses was trying to use God as a means to an end. Moses was a young Israelite, and all the people were slaves. And through a wonderful act of God, he was put into an Egyptian princess's home. And there he is raised, and he's given education, and he's given connections, and he's given power And he decides one day to to serve God by leading. He decides one day that he's going to be a deliverer, and he kills this Egyptian who is oppressing his people. And he turns to his people, and the people are not lining up behind him, saying, we will follow our leader Moses. But the people are offended. The people are saying, who made you to be the ruler over us? We know what you did. And Moses realized that he's made a tremendous mistake and that he's extremely vulnerable. And he runs to the backside of the desert, a failure. Life to be spent in nothingness, really? Tending to sheep, marrying someone who wasn't an Israelite, just going along. And Moses thought he was serving God, but he wanted to be a leader. He was trying to use God to get to what he wanted. And for 40 years, he wanders and he wanders and he wanders. And one day, to his shock, God comes to him and says, Moses, I'm going to make you a leader. And now Moses has a whole different tune. God, I'm a zero. God, I don't got anything. I don't have what it takes. I'm going to need some help. I don't know if I can do this. And to Moses' surprise, God takes him and he turns him into a very effective leader. And when leadership was the end and God was the means, Moses got neither. But when God was the end and leadership was the means, Moses got both. And Jesus says, listen, John, I know you're in trouble. but Let me remind you of something. I'm here. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. And John begins to learn some lessons, I think. There's a lot of lessons that I could take and I could speculate on, and a lot of people have spent time speculating on this passage and why is it that the feet are brass and why is it that that the sash is gold and not silver and why is the sash about his chest and not about his neck or not about his hips and and they try to speculate, and I'm going to ignore all of that. I'm going to stick to the core of what's being communicated here. Here's what John learned. John learned that Jesus was still perfect. I think at the very least we can know that God got a revelation of Jesus that was glorious and stunning in its effect. Verse 13, I won't reread it all, but it says that he does have a golden girdle. Verse 14, hair white like wool and and white as snow. His eyes, flame of fire, 15 feet, fine brass that were burned in a furnace, 16 countenance as the sun that shines in his strength. And this is strikingly similar to Matthew 17 in the account of the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember that story, Peter, James, and John went up to a mountain apart with Jesus And there they got a peek behind the curtain, and his glory was not as veiled as it had been in his flesh, and they got to see a transfigured glorified Jesus, and you read in Matthew 17 that his face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as light. You hear this voice that comes from heaven and knocks them to the ground. And I don't know if the voice was as the sound of many rushing waters, but I'd like to assume so, that says this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And the response to this event was the same as Revelation 1, where they fall down. And this, here's what John is getting We can know this. He's getting a vision of a transfigured, glorified Jesus that is still as perfect as ever. Now, why? Why would John need this? Follow me. Christ comes to John at perhaps the lowest point in his life, this persecuted and tribulation on the Isle of Patmos, and he gives him this vision of himself, this transfigured, glorified self. And says, John, look at me. Because the truth that has rung through the scriptures all through the centuries was still true. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on me. John, stay your eyes on me. John, stay your, stay your mind on me. John, look at me. John, I know it's chaos. I know everything's bubbling to the surface. I know it's there, but look at me. This is what you need. John learned that Jesus was still as perfect as ever. He learned that Jesus was just as powerful as ever. You see this both in the notation that there's this sword that comes out of his mouth. We'll see more about this in Revelation 19 where that sword is used to smite the nations. But you especially see it in verse number 18 where Jesus says, I am he that lives. I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore, amen. And I have the keys of death and hell. I unlock death. I unlock hell. They are under my control. I don't know if you've ever known anyone who had the Grim Reaper on a leash, but I have. His name's Jesus. I have the keys to death. Death isn't an agent unto himself. I was dead, but I canceled my own funeral. And all the minions of hell looked at each other and said, hell, help us, because heaven's about to break loose. And I came up out of the grave, and I have the keys to death. I have the keys to hell. I'm in control of that. I am over death. No one dies without my divine knowledge and control. I am over hell. I am in charge and sovereign over eternity. That's who you're talking to, John. Well, then don't miss this. Here's the whole sermon. If you didn't hear anything else, hear this. John learned that Jesus was powerful and that Jesus was perfect, but John learned that Jesus was present. Look in verse number 19. If you read a moment ago and you're like, oh, this is Pastor, this is why Revelation confuses me. I got these candlesticks and I got these stars and I don't, I don't know what in the world's going on here. Well, it'll tell you. Look at verse 19. John. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. By the way, that's a divine, like, index and table of contents to the book. Things which you've seen, chapter 1. Things which are, chapters 2 and 3. Things which shall be, 4 and after. Verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. Look, if that was mysterious to you, let me unlock the mystery. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks, which I saw, saw us are the seven churches. Now here's the sermon. John, the companion of tribulation. He and the churches are going through it. And Jesus comes and says, John, I'm with you, buddy. John, you're not alone. I'm here. John, hand on the right shoulder. John, don't be scared. Get up, John. I'm here. John those candlesticks that surrounded me, right? The son of man that was in the midst of them, those those are the churches. I'm still in the middle of my church. I haven't left. I haven't forsaken them. I didn't go out the back door. I'm still in the middle of my church. John, the stars, those are the angels, or you could say the messengers of the churches. Those are the leaders of the churches. They're still in my hand. John, I'm with you. John, I'm with the churches. John, I'm with the leaders of the churches. I know they're dragging them out into the street and they're executing them and all this tribulation is happening, but I'm there. I'm not gone. I haven't left you. I'm still with you. Now get what this means for you. Apply it to your life. This means that when the hardest moments of life hit and you're a Christian, he's with you. That when your health crumbles or your finances fade or you're in the hospital room or you're at the graveside, I'm with you, I'm not gone. I'm there in the middle of the chaos. I'm there in the middle of the trouble. I know it can feel sometimes like you're alone. I know it can feel too tough. I know it can feel like you can't go another day and that you're, that you're sinking, but you're, I'm here. And I'm still just as perfect and as powerful and as alpha and omega as I've ever been. I am with you, John. I am with the churches, John. Let them know it. Let, them know the, let the leaders know that I have them in my hand. Let them know they're not alone. And that was meant to help them, to help them know. He didn't change their circumstances. 200 plus years are going to go on and they're going to continue to be slaughtered and slaughtered and slaughtered. But he will be with them every step of the way, present and helping. And it's like he's trying to scream into the heart of John, John, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. John, yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear any evil because I am with you. John, I'm a refuge. I'm a help. I'm a strength. I'm a very present help, a present help, a present help in time of trouble. I'm here. What's happening? The ministry of presence is happening. How many of you would give your right arm to have 30 minutes with grandma or grandpa or mom or dad? back here just to talk with you for a little bit just just to have a few moments even if you didn't talk just to be in each other's company again I'm not diluting what that would mean to your soul or to your life but how much better is the alpha and the omega the first and the last who says I'm here I don't have to change it all. I'm not even going to make it easier. But I'm going to give you what you need, John. I'm going to give the churches what they need, John. I'll keep you in peace if you'll stay your mind on me. If you'll know that I'm still glorious and that the king of the cosmos is with his church. John, I haven't taken my hands off the steering wheel. And if that stabilized them, if that Gave them the resources that they needed to be able to face the freight of life. Man, I don't know what you're going through, but I dare say that that could help you too. I'd like to steal some words from the old hymn written in 1922 to, to end this sermon. Helen Limmel wrote, Oh soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You want to sing that with me? I'm not a good song leader, but let's sing that chorus together. And grace. I know John didn't have that hymn in the first century, but I think if he could have sang something at the end of Revelation 1, maybe he would have sang that. That's what he needed. And maybe it's what you need. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for truths that are so potent and so timeless. Jesus, we thank you for being the one who loves us and liberates us and lifts us, but for being God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who is perfect, the one who has all power, the one who's in control of eternity, the one who hasn't gotten off the throne, the one who hasn't taken his hands off the steering wheel, the one who hasn't let something slip through the cracks. And Jesus, I thank you that we can take our lives and sometimes the the pain that we go through and the hardship that we face or even the small amount of persecution we face, that we can take that and we can know that you are with us. And we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and not fear evil because you are with us. Thank you for not just the promises, but thank you for your presence. Jesus, thank you for the times in my life where your presence has been so real, helpful. And Lord, I pray that you would give that to people this morning. I pray that you would give that to to Dave in the VA hospital, who just lost his leg, I pray you'd give it to to Matt Osborne as they bury their dad today. God, I don't know all of the hurt and all of the trials and all the suffering. But I know that Carolyn and Ross are suffering right beside Jack as he hurts today. There's so many needs and there's so many, there's so much pain in life. And Jesus, I pray that we would lean on you and that we would rest in you and that we would trust you. And Lord, I'm believing that you are sufficient and that you are big enough to get us through even our darkest days. So Jesus, we love you and we thank you for offering to us what you offered to John and to the churches and to the messengers that you're still here, that you haven't forsaken us. This morning with our heads bowed, I want you just to take a minute and I want you to talk to the Lord. If you're a Christian in the room just respond to him at the very least praise him for being this glorious God the king of the cosmos if you need his help and you need his presence run to him we're so goofy we go to these these empty wells for comfort All the time, we we manufacture our own devices to to get help and to get strength and to cope with life. Run to Jesus. If you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to know that he died for you. He was the one who was dead. He died for sins. But he rose victoriously from from the grave. He is alive forevermore. And if you've never put your faith and your trust in him and said, Jesus, like Don, 45 years ago, I recognize my sin and I recognize that I need you to save me from my sin. And I ask you today, save me from my sin. If you've never done that, do that today. Make him Lord of your life today. Put your faith in him today. God, one more time, we come to you grateful for how you love us, for how you gave yourself for us. For what a, I hate to call you a resource, but in many ways, the resource that you are to us. Jesus, we wanna praise you. We wanna look to you. We want our, our mind to be stayed on you this week so that our heart can rest in peace. So may it happen, I pray. And I ask this in your precious and your strong name. Amen. Well, thank you for listening well this morning, and thank you for bearing with my emotional moment. Um, <clears throat> I, I appreciate it. I want to let you know that I love you. I'm glad that you're here today. And uh, I also want to point out, before we leave, I almost forgot this. Uh, Kevin and Becky, wave at us over there. Uh, so many of you all know the Turks. Uh, God, it, He in his providence, he has a way of orchestrating things and moving things around. The Turks were a part of the church for many, many years. Kevin served as a deacon here, and uh, the, the family has been uh, such a core of our church for so long, and, uh, and they're, they're back here at Harvest. And I was talking to Kevin and, uh, yesterday, and he said, let the church know, and uh, so if you'd like to welcome them back. I know that you're not new, but we we'll are welcome you back. Would you welcome them? <clears throat> um, So if you know Kevin and Becky, go give them a hug. And if you don't, they'll probably take a hug from you too. So anyway, I'm glad you're here. I want to say keep your eyes on Jesus this week. I love you, church. You're dismissed.